Hi, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I hope you've had um, a really good time around your table today. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it is always such fun, such a joy to be here studying the Word of God together with like-minded women. So thank you for uh, being here today, because I love being here today with you. Um, my children were in elementary school many, many years ago. They went to public school in Fort Worth. And back in the day, the public schools in Fort Worth encouraged all of the kiddos to run what was called the Cowtown Marathon 10K. It was a 6.2-mile run, and my older boys had done the Cowtown Marathon 10K for a couple of years when my youngest started kindergarten. And because the baby of the family is always determined to keep up with his big brothers, he insisted his kindergarten year that he was going to do that 10K as well. And all of my attempts to talk a six-year-old out of doing a six-mile walk failed. And finally, just because he wore me down, I agreed to walk with him for those six miles while dad ran with his two older brothers. Um, and I'm here to confess, probably one of the worst parenting decisions uh, of my life because after we started that 10K and got about half a mile into it, he decided, oh, this isn't really that much fun. This is uh, boring and hard and hot and I can't sit down anywhere. And he began to whine for the next five and a half miles um, that he was bored, tired, sick, crippled. And he even came up with the word paralyzed. I was like, where did you get that word paralyzed? Um, and begged me to carry him. And at age six, he was about this tall. So obviously I was not carrying him for five miles. Um, this, of course, was back in the day before cell phones, so I couldn't call anyone for rescue. So we had no choice but to finish that six-mile race, and I dragged him the entire way with him whining. It was painful for both of us, needless to say. He still remembers it that way, and I still remember it that way. Uh, and, but, but back then, the interesting thing was you finished that six-mile race at the top of Exchange Avenue in the stockyards, which is kind of you run downhill. And when we got to the top of that hill at Exchange Avenue, the entire next half mile was lined with people cheering on the racers, people that had already finished, because obviously we weren't in the top finishers. Um, and we stopped at the top of that hill, and my six-year-old, this complaining, whining, paralyzed six-year-old, took off like he was shot out of a cannon and ran as fast as he could to the finish line. Now, it took me a few minutes to catch up with him. I was stunned, and when I finally caught up with him, I said, what happened? Why did you quit crying and complaining and decide to run? And he said, Mom, they were cheering for me. <laughs> So he learned a great lesson that day. 
Perseverance pays off at the finish line. Perseverance pays off in the finish line. What I learned was never take a six-year-old on a six-mile walk. But if you do, only perseverance, only dragging him with you, persisting through the difficulty of a whining six-year-old, which is really the definition of perseverance, only that perseverance is going to get you to the finish line. Um, So we're going to persevere together today. We're going to take our own journey in perseverance as we continue on in this great book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at the marathon that we are all running every single day, because ladies, we are in a marathon of faith. So open your Bibles and look at verse 1 in chapter 12 with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of uh, shedding your blood." Now, the first word here in chapter 12 is therefore. That gives us a clue. It gives us a clue that what we have here in chapter 12 is the application that we need to take to heart from chapter 11, that great chapter of faith that we looked at last week. When Hebrews was written, just like today, athletic contests were important. Our author gives us a great visual here because what he does is he compares our faith journey to a marathon, to a race. Um, And it is a race that must be run with endurance. Your translation may say perseverance. It's the same Greek word. Now, the Old Testament saints that have gone before us, a lot of those people that we looked at last week, um, he calls them out here as a cloud of witnesses. But they're not really able to see us right now. It's not as if they're actually watching us. What he wants us to know when he calls them our cloud of witnesses is that it's their lives, how they live their lives, how we, what we read about last week that give us incredible examples of how to walk by faith, not by sight, every single day through every circumstance. They're showing us how to do it. They did it well, and we can learn from their lesson. These saints put aside every single hardship and burden and continued their marathon of faith with perseverance, and so should we. We looked at some of the faith journeys last week of Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Noah and countless others in chapter 11. You pay close attention to their faith marathons. You see, they didn't have sprints, did they? Their journeys were not short and fast and easily finished. Their faith journeys were definitely long-lasting, exactly like a marathon. The the last few verses in chapter 11 have just so stuck with me as we've studied this because it talks about the fact that these marathon runners were tortured, imprisoned, stoned, sodded to, destitute, mistreated. 
And that's the example that the author of Hebrews wants his readers to take hold of and apply to their race of faith. You know, the Greek word for endurance here, or perseverance, if may say in your Bible, if you're in the NIV particularly, means hopeful constancy. It means running with a constant view of hope towards the future. It also means patiently steadfast. You know, no marathon is finished unless the runner perseveres or endures. Um, and it turns out that our author actually happens to be a pretty great marathon coach. And chapter 12 is actually a great coaching guide into persevering in our marathon of faith. Because he gives his readers here, and all of us as we study along with them, he gives them here some great wisdom uh, to encourage them. Um, and he starts off by telling them to take off any weight or burden or encumbrance that may make running um, their marathon of faith harder or more difficult. He didn't particularly mention dragging a six-year-old, but that's uh, kind of how I took it. Yeah, I don't take a six-year-old with you. Um, these weights or burdens are actually not physical encumbrances. I was out walking the other day and a guy jogged past me and he had on this big zip-up uh, weight vest. That's not what he's talking about here, physical encumbrances. He's talking more about spiritual or emotional burdens, those things that we carry in our hearts and minds that weigh us down emotionally and slow us down on our marathon of faith. Um, things like an, an attachment to this world, things where um, we really uh, have a worldview that isn't a Christian worldview, and it's hard to continue that marathon of faith without a Christian worldview. It weighs you down. It could be pride and people feel pleasing. It's hard to run a marathon of faith if you're really just concerned if the people around you are pleased. It could be a preoccupation with money finances, wealth. It could be dwelling with a past failure or a loss. Sometimes those are the hardest things to get past. Anything that weighs his readers down and wears them out in their spiritual journey, his wisdom to them is put it down, let it go, walk away from it. Um, and along with that, not only does he want them to put down these emotional or spiritual burdens that they may be carrying, he wants them to recognize that sin in their life is going to derail their journey of faith. One of my sons ran an ultra marathon a couple of years ago. You know, a regular marathon is a 26.2 race, I think, mile race. Um, but an ultra marathon is a 50 mile race. Um, and this particular ultra marathon was actually run on a beach in Florida, which made it more of a challenge because it's not a solid surface. You know what sand is like when you uh, walk on it. And he was actually very disappointed because he was only able to do 35 miles of the uh, marathon. And the reason was the sand and the salt water from running on this beach for 35 miles 
totally destroyed his shoes, and consequently, his feet were actually just bloody pulps after 35 miles of running through sand and salt water. Um, he was unable to keep that sand and salt water from sticking to his feet. Our author describes sin as much the same way here. We can't keep it from sticking to us. It clings to us, and it ravages us, much like the sand and the salt water ravaged my son's feet um, in the marathon. Sin is abrasive. Sin is abrasive. It bloodies us in our marathon of faith. Now, our author may be talking here, as he talks to his audience, uh, about the sin that clings to them. He may be talking um, about the sin of apostasy that he's been warning them about over and over again, that they continue to turn away from God's truth that they've already embraced and back to error. But any and every sin, whether it's the sin of apostasy or any other sin that may be part of their life, will ravage us as believers and keep them and us from persevering in our faith. Um, his wisdom for his readers here is get rid of anything that makes your faith marathon more difficult. It's time to take an assessment here. What's weighing you down? What's ravaging you? Um, I love the way the message, uh, if you ever read the message, it's a fun translation to read and compare. The way the message translates these verses is pretty direct. The message says, strip down, start running, never quit. That's a pretty uh, direct way to remember it. Uh, and our author here goes on to give his readers the key to making that choice, to stripping down, start running, and never quit. You know, um, he believes the key is Jesus. The Old Testament saints in chapter 11 are actually amazing examples of walking by faith, not by sight. But it is Jesus who is the perfect example of walking by faith and not by sight. He persevered. He endured the shame, the degradation, the suffering of being rejected by his own people. He persevered in faith as he trusted God the Father completely and obediently to the point of death. He persevered through the condemnation and the weight of every possible sin imaginable at the cross. And Jesus ran his marathon of faith with joy and gladness, not because it was such a thrilling place to be. He ran with joy and gladness because he kept his eyes on the finish line. He kept his eyes on the finish line where his victory over death would be complete. That gave him great joy to know what would be accomplished if he finished his marathon of faith. He kept what the cross, uh, you know, a lot of people would, we would think he kept the cross in view, but what he really kept was what the cross would accomplish in view. That's what he continued to look at look at in his marathon of faith. His focus was on his purpose in this life, God's purpose for him, um, and he never wavered. He never wavered. Now, the last thing our marathon coach shares with us in these verses right here is a reminder of, you know, it's pretty easy to become self-focused um, in our marathon of faith when our run is hard. Many times we endure hardship in our faith marathon. 
we turn inward, and I'm speaking to myself here um, because I've struggled with this all of my life. I get focused on how hard my circumstances are. I get up every day thinking how hard this is going to be to persevere through suffering or hardship or whatever it is. And I forget to look around and see the hard that everyone else is experiencing. Our marathon coach reminds his readers right here that their faith race might be hard. My faith race might be hard. But it's never going to be as hard as Jesus' faith race. Um, His readers have not yet suffered to the point of death as Jesus had been willingly done for them. As their example of persevering in their faith, Jesus had endured far more than they would ever be called on to endure. He has endured far more than we will ever be called on to endure. And these are great words for us today, too. They're written to these uh, Hebrew believers, but I think we all take them to heart as well. Um, We are in the most important contest of our life, for sure. The marathon of walking by faith, not by sight, every single day in a world that's gone crazy. It's a marathon that we are only going to finish well by fixing our eyes on Jesus the perfect example of a life lived by faith, by trusting and following his example um, of faith, remembering when we get bogged down with how hard our race might be, we need to remember how he persevered, enduring the cross willingly for each one of us. And when we do that, it gives us a heart and the courage that it takes for us to persevere in our marathon as well. It keeps us from becoming weary and faint-hearted simply because we are looking straight into his face and knowing he persevered. Look at Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's our challenge today. Let's follow Jesus all the way to the finish line, knowing that he's waiting there for us. Okay, read a few more verses with me. Look at verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Uh, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for the short time as it seemed best for them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. 
one. Okay, so it's not hard to spot the key words here in these verses, is it? Um, he uses the word discipline nine times in six verses, and he uses the word son or children seven times in these six verses. And in the Greek, the word that he uses here for discipline means train or nurture or instruction as well as uh, correction. Um, because apparently the, the author's readers have forgotten the Old Testament truth that's in Proverbs, that discipline is evidence of God's divine love, divine perfect love for his children. Um, he hasn't forgotten us when he disciplines us. It's evidence of his love. Now, whatever hardships the readers of Hebrews are facing because of their faith, his message to them here in the book of Hebrews is don't be discouraged. Be encouraged whenever you have hardship because it's proof that you are truly God's own children. Um, those we love, we hold accountable for their actions, don't we? Um, and for those of you that are parents, this is a, a lesson that's so evident. If, uh, it hits home when you think of having your uh, children's friends over. If they get into mischief when friends are over, which happened frequently at my house, it may not happen at yours, but uh, if they all get into some sort of mischief, you may send the friends home after the mischief, but you don't discipline the friends, do you? You don't put them in timeout. You don't take away their video games or ground them or whatever. That's what you do to your own children. That's because they're the ones that you love and you're responsible for. God parents us in the exact same way. He disciplines us, allows us to have hardship and suffering out of his great love for us because he's molding our faith, our character. He's teaching us steadfastness in the face of hardship that we might be able to endure even more hardship. Look at James 1 on your verse sheet. Um, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, God the Father designs discipline in our life and allows hardship, even suffering, in, the lives, uh, in our lives for our welfare. Uh, it doesn't seem like that in the midst of trials, I know, but it truly is for our welfare because it's during those hard times, it's during our suffering that he grows us to maturity. He gives us a heart change that we need so that we begin to look more like Christ every single day. Just like a good parent, he's not trying to make us happy in this life. He's trying to make us holy um, so that our lives will yield the fruit of righteousness that our author talks about here. And it is through those hard things in life that we learn a very important lesson. And that lesson is to submit to his authority, to know his word, to honor and obey his word, because that's what our Lord Jesus did, didn't he? That's his example of how to persevere in the faith. He has modeled to us how you submit to the Father's will, even when the path you walk is hard and filled with suffering. He submitted walking that path of suffering all the way to the cross. He submitted obediently to God's will. And submitting to God's will 
is an important lesson that, come, that can come out of our suffering. I'll share um, a, a tip with you. The more strong-willed we are, the more suffering and hardship it takes to get us to lay down our strong will and submit to the Father's will. I uh, meet with a great Christ Chapel gal um, periodically, and she's gone through an incredibly hard time. Uh, I, yeah, lots of suffering. And I love this gal for a lot of reasons. She's an incredible gal. But one of the reasons that I love her so much is that through this whole thing, she has come to the great understanding and acknowledge that some of her suffering is because she ignored God's will and she ignored God's truth, and she ignored his authority in her life in some big decisions. And now, some of the hardship she experiences is because of that. Um, but she's not bitter. She's incredibly teachable. Um, she knows how much God loves her, despite all the things she's still going through. And what she's looking forward to is running a better race, running a better race to making better choices in her future because now she's really learned that big lesson of submitting to God's will and authority in her life. With a submissive spirit, this great gal has accepted God's loving discipline knowing that he's preparing her for a better future. That's what his goal was. Our author has a great point in these verses. Never forget God's great love for you as you persevere through suffering, no matter how hard it is, through trials and hardship, and willingly submit to his discipline because he is preparing his readers and all of us for our future, both here and in eternity. Look at Psalm 119 with me. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. You know, loving his law and submitting to his discipline allows us to persevere in our marathon of faith because he's preparing us to make it to that finish line. Okay, read a few more verses with me. Look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Um, so what he's telling us here and telling his readers here in this book of Hebrews, our author is saying, hey, you guys all have some work to do if you're going to persevere to the end of a marathon. You know, those of you that have ever trained uh, for a marathon, I'm sure there's some of you in here that have trained and run a marathon, or if you've had friends or family that have trained for a marathon, you know it takes intentionality. It takes a plan and a commitment 
commitment. A marathon is not for the unprepared, definitely. And a, a marathon of faith is not for the spiritually unprepared either. You know, we can't neglect our spiritual lives simply because we're in the midst of running our marathon of faith. Even in the midst of our marathon of faith, we still have to have a plan. We still have to be committed to staying strong and healthy, or we become just like his audience here. He's talking about their spiritual tank being empty. Their hands are drooping. Their knees are weak. They are spiritually weak. Uh, Staying strong as we run our marathon of faith takes an intentional everyday commitment to build up our spiritual muscles because building our spiritual muscles is the only way we're going to um, grow our faith so that we have the fuel in our spiritual tank to finish. Um, But it's not a complicated thing to grow your spiritual muscles at all, actually. Fortunately, my husband loves to exercise. I've known him since the seventh grade. He's always loved to exercise. Um, And he's always trying to get me to love exercise, which actually is never going to happen. But... um, (laughs) Uh, and so what he does is he has all these incredible uh, training regimens and his websites and training videos, uh, and, and they're all complicated. And he'll say, okay, look at this with me. This is, um, you know, how you're going to get upper body strength or whatever it is he's working on. And it's so complicated. I can't even follow what they're doing on this. It makes me want to eat ice cream. That's what complicated (laughs) training videos do, is make me want to eat ice cream. So what I do, uh, because he's so cute and fun trying to make me watch all these training videos, is I simply smile at him and shake my head, and then I go get on my treadmill, which is simple. It has one button. I press it. As long as I have on my tennis shoes, that's all I have to do. It's simple, and it works. And so um, that's what I want us to remember about our training regimen for staying spiritually strong. It doesn't have to be complicated. It can be simple and still works. In fact, you're all doing it today. It means staying in God's Word with a committed Bible study, not just for one season, one year in a long life, but every season, every year. Be part of a committed Bible study. That builds those muscles of faith. Being part of a great fellowship of worship, which I imagine I'm preaching to the choir here. But um, yeah, be part of a consistent fellowship of worship. That builds your faith muscles. Talking to God, listening to God, sharing the gospel, these are all effective spiritual exercises that are not complicated to do, but they will keep us growing and um, our faith muscles getting stronger as we head towards that finish line. Um, But there's one more thing he wants us to be intentional about here, and it's what he calls smoothing out our path. He's really talking about the path to discipleship here, that we're running our marathon of faith on. We've got to be intentional in making sure our path is smooth. In other words, we have to fill up those potholes so that as we're running along, we don't step in a hole, break our leg, fall down. Uh, And these obstacles are anything 
that can make a pothole in your journey of discipleship. Sometimes it's social media. Do any of you open up your social media and just fall into it? And then you look up and it's an hour later. I mean, you think, what happened to my time? We fall into the pothole of social media on our um, path uh, uh, to discipleship. It may be busyness. That's me. That's a pothole in me. I've got this. I've got that. I've got to go there. I'm running around and all of a sudden it's 10 o'clock at night. Where has my day gone? I fall into the pothole of busyness. Uh, It may be too many family responsibilities, which all of them are good, but with three boys growing up, we had sports every night of the week and all weekend long. That is a pothole on the path of spiritual journey. We have to learn to Fill that up and smooth out our path so that we reclaim the ability to run our marathon of faith. These are all good things that can impede our faith journey. For the Hebrew audience, I have an idea that it may be their former life as practicing Jews. He may be talking about the fact that as formerly practicing Jews, they wanted to turn back to living under the law or maybe going back to the temple because all their friends were there and it was familiar. That would be a pothole that would impede their journey of faith. Um, And I think we also have to mention, because he mentions here living a life of peace with those around you, these Jewish converts are probably surrounded by opposition from their family, their friends, their neighbors, because they have turned away from being practicing Jews. They have turned to Jesus. So they may be facing hostility from the people that live around them. and as they embrace their new life in Christ. So our author encourages them and all of us to strive for peace with everyone. Um, I have to uh, share with you that as I studied this, for some reason I I became um, uh, so taken with that word strive, which in the Greek here it means to press on or lean into um, because, you know, peaceful relationships don't just happen, do they? Or at least they don't happen in my life. We spend our life bumping into people um, around us. Most relationships have some drama involved in them that slow us down or derail our uh, faith uh, conflict our faith journey with conflict, Um, how the Hebrew Christians lived with the people around them, their friends, their neighbors, uh, their family members is important because the team shirt they're now wearing in their marathon says Jesus in big letters across the front of it. And you know what Jesus' team motto is? Holiness. Holiness. So when you're wearing Jesus' team shirt and your marathon of faith, your motto is holiness, which is living a life set apart, giving glory to God through obedience to his will. Um, knowing Jesus intimately as a team member with that t-shirt on only becomes a reality if we pursue personal holiness, and peaceful relationships and a life set apart from the world around us. Now, um, 
our, our, he has one more tip in these verses that I think is uh, so interesting. He says, he mentions Esau here, and he's, he doesn't want the readers of Hebrews to miss the blessings that belong to God's people because they become complacent and lazy in their marathon. Um, my six-year-old just wanted to sit down on the curb when we were walking in our race. If you do that, you're going to miss the blessings. He would have never seen those cheering people at the end of the finish line. So our author here is saying to all of us, don't become complacent and lazy and sit down on the curb. Um, I, it's interesting that he mentions Esau here because Esau is an interesting guy in the Old Testament. And I hope you had the opportunity to read about him because he gave up his future inheritance as Isaac's firstborn son for a bowl of stew. A bowl of stew. He was indifferent about his inheritance. He really wasn't worried about finishing or getting uh, what was rightfully his as firstborn. He threw away everything he could have in the future for something he wanted right then. Um, and when God's people stop pursuing everything we can have in the future through spiritual growth and holiness and godly relationships and moral choices, just like Esau, God's people are giving up their future blessings. We're giving up the joy and peace of knowing Jesus intimately, giving up the rewards that are waiting for us in heaven, given to us by the grace of God, and we're giving them up for some immediate distraction that's not worth it. It's not worth it. Our author, again, may have apostasy in view here, uh, what he's been warning his readers about. Don't turn away from God for something that's offered to satisfy your immediate gratification. Um, uh, and just like uh, we talked about in chapter 6, our readers are not going to lose their salvation, their eternal life. But if they fall prey to immediate gratification rather than pursuing the rewards that they're going to have at the finish line of their marathon of faith, they're not going to lose their salvation, but they are going to lose their future blessings. Now, these are important truths here for us as marathon runners as well. Um, ever since studying this, like I said, I've been been taken with this word strive because it gives us the picture I think we need in our marathon of faith. Because if we are going to finish our marathon of faith, we're going to have to lean vigorously in. We're going to have to strive uh, to grow stronger. It's not something that's going to happen if we sit in our easy chair or sit along the curb on the way. Um, we're also going to have to lean into those relationships. You know, we're all looking at family holidays coming up, and there's some of those relationships we're going to have to strive for. We're going to have to lean into in order for them to be peaceful relationships, living peaceably with families and coworkers and neighbors um, as we persevere in holiness. Um, we're going to have to be in this world, but not of this world. Um, our team shirt in this marathon says Jesus too, doesn't it? Look at 1 John 3 with me. 
Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But what we know, that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And 1 Peter 1.15 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. As Team Jesus, we persevere in this marathon of faith by striving for holiness, striving for peace, avoiding the trap of complacency and laziness that will lead to the loss of our future blessings. Okay, we have a few more verses. Look at verse 18 with me. Um, for you have not come to what may be touched by a bla- uh, touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches this mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in the festal gathering, and to the assembly uh, of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What he starts out talking about here uh, in this description is a description of when um, God gave the law to Moses and the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And the giving of the law was definitely not for the faint-hearted, was it? If you went back and read a little bit about it in Jesus, in Genesis, there was thunder and lightning and blazing and trumpets. There was an earthquake. The people were afraid. Uh, And even Moses was frightened and trembling at this incredible display of God's power. Um, But here, in these verses, what he wants his readers to understand um, is that they have left the old covenant behind. They've left it behind, and their new reality is the new covenant. And that new covenant, the new reality, is the new city. It's Mount Zion, the new city, the heavenly Jerusalem that they could look forward to. They don't have to think back on that scary time on Mount Sinai. They can look forward to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the city of the living God. It's filled with angels and believers and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant by his blood. He mentions Abel here. And uh, Misty talked about Abel last week in chapter 11. And when Abel was killed, his blood cried out for vengeance and justice uh, back in the Old Testament. Look at Genesis 4. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance and justice after it was spilled. But Jesus' blood, which ushers in the new uh, 
Covenant announces mercy and grace for sinners, proclaiming salvation. He wants them to see the difference that it makes in the new covenant. You know, most marathon runners, I talked to a marathon runner yesterday, and she said to me, most marathon runners picture that finish line. They say, I'm halfway through to the finish line. I'm three quarters of the way to the finish line. Um, They picture what those final steps are going to feel like and how great it's going to be to fall into the arms of their friends and their families and it keeps them going even when they want to quit. Our author is painting that picture here for our Hebrews, a picture of the heaven realities that are theirs under the new covenant. The superior blessings of the new covenant should encourage his Hebrew readers to faithfully finish their race of faith, to persevere at all costs because of what is waiting for them. But he also has a warning for them, and we're going to look at that in verse 25 together. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if um, they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but the heaven. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, we're almost to the finish line of the book of Hebrews, aren't we? We're in the next to the last chapter. And if you've counted, there have been five warnings in the book of Hebrews. And this is the final one. And once again, it's another warning uh, against apostasy for these Hebrew believers. And what he shares with them here is that the nation of Israel turned away from the law when God spoke it to them on Mount Sinai. Again and again, the nation of Israel throughout their history has turned away from God and God's voice through the law and turned to the idol worship of the nations around them. They refused to listen to God when he spoke to them from Mount Sinai is what the author is talking about here. And because of that, they've suffered repeated consequences as a nation from turning away from God's truth, his law, and embracing error. So what he warns these believers is not to ignore God's divine voice now. Now as he speaks to them from heaven, where Jesus, the originator of the new covenant, sits, Don't ignore God's voice now like the nation of Israel ignored him on Mount Sinai. When God gave the old covenant on Mount Sinai, he actually shook the earth. There was a great earthquake. After the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom, it says here and in other places, God is going to shake both the heavens and the earth again, sweeping away everything that we know here now creating an eternal kingdom for his people that will never be shaken. Look at the prophesy of this in Haggai 2.6. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first time, and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. This is the unshakable new kingdom that is going to wait for the readers of Hebrews and for us. It's the finish line of our marathon of faith. It's going to be an eternal kingdom created that we will live in forever together, ruled by Jesus, our Savior. Their home is not in this world under the new covenant, under the old covenant. That's what he's sharing with them. Their home is with Jesus, made possible by the new covenant in his blood. It is the eternal kingdom that waits for him. So our author's last encouragement um, in these final verses for everyone running the marathon of faith is run with an incredible heart of gratitude uh, for what is really waiting for us. Um, Persevere in this marathon of faith motivated by a thankful heart for the unshakable kingdom that waits. His eternal kingdom that can never be destroyed is our finish line. Look at Philippians 3.13 with me. Forgetting what's behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. That is our goal as well. Let's wear our team shirt, uh, Jesus, and persevere to the, ma- to the finish line in our marathon of faith together. Pray with me. Father, you're so good and gracious to us, and your word is truth, and I pray that all of us would leave here today uh, with your truth just embedded in our hearts, and that we would be committed to uh, persevering in our marathon of faith despite the suffering and the hardship all the way to the finish line, because Jesus waits there for us. Lord, you are good to us, and we love you. We're grateful uh, to be here together today. We're grateful grateful for the truth of your word. We're grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.